This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the way to a motherfucker like KTP's remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, whoa, skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. You nigga naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. So the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I certainly can because I have a very, very special guest. Again, all my guests are special, but this one is particularly special. I was actually talking to him about this right before we got on. My friend, Cal new architect, author. We're going to get into all of it today. Cal, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Very excited for this. Of course, man. Like I was kind of alluding to earlier, I think like, it, you know, this episode is two firsts. First, it's going to be you're the first guy from our men's group where we got to know each other, uh, the Affluent Standard that I've had on the podcast, so I'm very excited about that. You were the inaugural glass ceiling breaker from that kind of sense, and you are also the first author that I've had on, which is super exciting for me, and I would hope for you, because you know authors are kind of a, I would say, a unique breed in the sense that there's not really a lot of us, so when we kind of have a chance to connect and talk about work and everything like that over this kind of you know kind of formal, kind of not informal thing, it's, it's a cool thing, man, so I'm really excited to get into your book. And everything that's kind of going on with you today and all that kind of stuff so i'm super pumped yeah likewise um you know besides outside of yourself really the only author that i've known of is really my pastor oh, yeah? that kind of kind of pushed me to write in this book so you know to even to even hear that you have your other guys in the standard now that are writing books and stuff like that so it's really exciting to see and just meeting you and like learning about, about like all the things that you have done and like um, your process in writing your own book and you know how it how similar it is to my process and you know just 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 the whole idea of behind meeting another author is, is, is yeah I personally never thought of myself to be an author to even begin with so yeah I know it's 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 so weird I, I think it's kind of like when you put it that way it is kind of weird and, it, and it's interesting that you say kind of like it's weird that we've kind of come across one another in this way because your book in large sense uh, your book the African immigrant household is about kind of where you come from, your family roots and everything, and they could not be more different than mine or probably a lot of other guys in the standard. So it's kind of interesting how, like, writing is that common thing that can bring people together from all over the world, and I can read your book and you can get perspective from, or I can get perspective from, excuse me, you can read my book and get perspective from everything else. And I thought that was honestly, like, the coolest thing about your book was that it was something that was so foreign to me since I didn't live it. It wasn't my lived experience as I kind of came in and did all this stuff that I really got a sense of kind of what all of that was in terms of how you went about going your process. So the first question, what I wanted to ask you is kind of, what was the thing that compelled you to write a book about this subject specifically, your life kind of growing up as an immigrant child in this kind of a, in the African immigrant household, and you can kind of get into your background a little bit, but what was the 
Like, what was the driving force that made this the thing that you wanted to write about so much versus all the things you could undeniably write about, write about in other contexts? Yeah, so, so to answer your question, um, it really goes back to what I said earlier, what I alluded to earlier, being that my pastor kind of, you know, uh, pushed me into into writing this book, uh, and it's also he's also kind of the, the the one who basically helped me in figuring out what subject matter to write on because you know as for, as a first time author to begin with, I didn't know like what what am I going to write about? What story do I have to tell other people? What message do I have to convey um, that you know that people could possibly learn from or could find find um, value, um, and you know many things came to my mind. You know I thought about um, I thought about sports. You know I love playing sports. So I said you know what if I write a book on sports? Um, then I thought about I just went down a list. I wrote down a list a list of about five to ten different topics that I felt you know would have been you know a compelling book to write on. And it was books. Um, I had uh, another topic was on music. Another topic was on architecture. Um, though I'm not an architect yet, I'm still working towards that license. Um, another book was architecture, the field that I'm in now. And um, the other, the other was really just my life story, like what you know I've gone through, which you know, not too many people uh, really well. Let me not say not too many people because we're in the U.S., right? We're in the states, basically yeah, a melting yeah. pot. <laughs> we're basically made up of made up of immigrants. But um, a lot of people ask me a lot of questions about you know my childhood, how I grew up back home, in comparison to my upbringing here in the states. So that really, you know, that was kind of the the outlier. What kind of just stood out to me, and probably the easiest thing for me to gravitate gravitate towards. So, you know, consulting with my pastor at my church, he and I, you know, sat down and do the list of things. And he himself is also an immigrant, so it, it was pretty easy. As you know, he's the co-author on the book. It was pretty easy for he and I to kind of collaborate together and like just come up with different ideas, different um, topics in the book, and different um, chapters to go through. Uh, so yeah, that's how that's how I ended up choosing that that uh, topic for my book. Yeah, cool, man. So I, I it was it was actually cool. I I never really realized until I picked up your book that you co-authored it with your pastor, and you yeah. kind of you know it's cool that you guys have your similar life experience that you guys kind of had like that same I would say string to walk down as you guys were kind of doing this together. You probably bounced some ideas off him. You probably bounced some ideas off of you. And I'm yeah. assuming even though I don't know if you guys hail from the same home country, but it, it, like. It, the immigrant experience, I think, from a lot of people is in is similar in one way or another, no matter where you come from, whether you come from a European country, African country, Asian country, whatever it's going to be. It's all kind of that thing where it's like the Drake paradox. It's like you start from the bottom, you go over here, you kind of make your way up in society, however you want to exactly. make it up, and everything else kind of fits exactly. in behind that. And the people that I would say you also probably related to in a lot of ways, and you did, you mentioned them throughout the book, are your parents. And so I have two questions primarily on, on your parents. So... What were their lives? And you touch on this a little bit, but you know, for the audience that's listening that hasn't maybe read the book yet, you all should buy it. I'll link it in the podcast description. Um, what were their lives like back in Africa? And two, for a question more pertaining to you, what was kind of your struggle? Did you ever struggle with kind of having like that traditional African identity versus an American identity? Because you grew up in New York City, you still live there now, so you grew up primarily in America. You live in America now, but you have these parents and your parents who grew up in a completely different culture 
So that must have been, I would imagine, a pretty big conflict in terms of like what your parents are telling you to do versus what your friends maybe or your siblings or the society around you is telling you to do in New York. So tell me a little bit about your parents, what their lives were like, and about that kind of mix of identity that you had being an American and also being a child of African immigrants that came over here that were not raised in the place that you were raised in. Yeah. Uh, so let me start with my parents, like you said. So my parents, uh, uh, let me start with my mom. My mom, she was born in Niger. Um, and as I said earlier, both of my family on both sides, they both come from Benin. Um, that's, the, that's the original country where we actually come from. But um, my mother was born in Niger, in Niamey, Niger. The, the, the capital of the city is called Niamey. Um, and the country itself is called Niger. And it shares borders with Benin, which is where her mother is from. So my grandmother on my mother's okay. side, my father on my mother's side are both from Benin, but they uh, moved to Niger. And that's where my mother was born. And she was born in a pretty, um, she was born in, I want to say what would be, um, for lack of better words, it would be uh, a city, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a pretty, it was, it was developed um, and she kind of, she, she didn't really know too much about the, the life um, that my grandparents lived, though she did go back to the village where my parent, where my grand, great-grandparents were from, and they would visit every now and then. Um, but it was, it was also a little bit tough for her family growing up. She's one of, I believe, um, it was a total of about uh, seven or eight. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And yeah, she, she is, I believe, like the fifth the fifth one so she has no actually yes so she's the fifth one where she has two or three after her um and basically her upbringing was tough being that her father passed away when she was just about 15 or 16 years old so so her mom was left to fend for herself and her seven children that she was you know bringing and raising up at that time and you know thank god all of them are pretty successful now. All of them are pretty much able to take care, we take well care of themselves and their family. Um, so that that upbringing kind of lived. Um, it basically breathed breath this kind of um, resilience within her, where she's always trying to find a way to um, basically make something out of nothing. Um, yep. So she she grew up basically trying to find. Um, you know, a sort like any ways or any means or methods that she can find to in, in order to sustain herself and her her mother, help her in any ways that she could. Um, so I believe like right after she graduated high school, she started working for she she took an apprentice um, job after she got her her license as a well I I, I would call it a license, but really it's a certificate after she completed a, a course to become a tailor which is when she started opening up her own business to become a tailor and, and you know, thank God that was pretty successful and that she basically was able to take care of, my, of myself and my younger sister at the time before I'm one of three. So um, that's my mother's side. On my father's side, he had a much tougher upbringing. Um, my father was born in Benin um, and he was born in a village. So literally what people or what is portrayed on TV about Africa, you know. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Villages, the, the huts and everything. That's literally what my dad came from. Um, 
And, you know, he had the opportunity to go to school for a bit, but he didn't really, um, he didn't really finish school. As he, he also only went as, high, as far as high school. Um, being that going to college would have been too expensive for him to do. But the thing that pushed him really was the fact that his father was a, uh, was a World War II, um, he was in the army uh, back in World War II. And after, after the war, he ended up basically, um, when he went back to Benin, um, there were a lot of things that could have helped him and his family as far as like the benefits that came with being within, within the army. But um, I don't know what the politics were, but he did not want to take any parts within, you know, any of the benefits that came with being part of the army. So he became a farmer and basically lived in the village and raised my father along with his siblings. And my father basically, he told my father, you know, if he, there was any way he could find a, um, uh, his way t into the city in Benin to kind of learn anything, to kind of, you know, help him grow and get out of the village to do so. So my dad, that kind of started to breed that ent entrepreneurial spirit within my father as well. Where he would some days he would uh, he would tell me stories. He has a lot of stories. One of which would be you know how far he would have to walk to get just to get to school every day. Um, or another story which was pretty crazy to me was just how far he had to walk just to earn a couple of dollars. Where the like I mentioned earlier the 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 border between Benin and um, Niger is something where you can cross um, pretty. Uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's it'll probably take you uh, maybe a 12-hour drive driving from the main city in Niger to the main city in Benin. Um, so probably a day's, tra a day's travel. So my dad would, would walk miles on end, maybe about two, three hours, crossing the borders back and forth with a barrel on top of his head, selling, um, what was it, um, gas, basically. So he would oh go God, to the gas station, right, fill up. Um, you ever seen those those huge, I don't know exactly how much gallons of water is in it, but it's a huge blue, like, bottle. Like a 50-gallon drum type of thing. Yeah, exactly. So he yeah. would go yeah, to the okay. gas wow. station. Yeah, go to the gas station. There was a guy at the gas station that would fill up the, 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 that bottle for him, and he would put that on his head and then walk across the border, sell the gas to, to um, people that are passing by in their cars, sell the, the, the gas to them go back and refill that, that that bottle again and just make probably about 10 trips um, within a day before he could probably earn maybe, let's say, about, you know, $3, $4, if that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that, that kind of, like, that's, I think that's what kind of started to breed that entrepreneurial spirit within him and that led him to, you know, start his own business. And um, like my mom, he took, uh, he learned how to, basically back, back in those days, he, he basically learned how to fix TVs and other electronics. And that was big back then because, you know, when you bought electronics, first of all, you must have had a lot of money in order to yeah, acquire sure. all these things. So that there was another business where most people, when their electronics weren't working properly, you know, you would go to someone like my father who had his own business that where they will fix your laptop for you or your, your television screen for you, whatever the case may be. So he learned how to do that and the business went was going really well and you know that uh eventually you know they he crossed paths with my mom they met at church and you know the rest is history hopefully i'm not yeah. bad so just let me know no no no, no. That, that, that was great no i i, I love that and i think that it's 
it's it's so cool how like people just kind of like their walk and they kind of just you know find their way to kind of whatever they want to do which eventually leads to like us having this conversation right now so like i, I love origin stories that's all super yeah, cool yeah. to me and i think <laughs> kind of like the way that that's the coolest part of the um of the story to me and i think the the other big pillar that i noticed throughout your book before we get into the specifics is your faith and so basically like the your kind of your relationship with god your your christian faith really colors a lot of other things so Two questions on that. So first of all, how did you come to know God? And you say throughout the book, but how did you kind of know to come to uh, the Christian faith and kind of how does that integrate in your life? And it's, like I said, it's the major theme or a major theme provided throughout the book and it's the bedrock of much of your principles. And just in a general sort of question, how big is Christianity in African culture in and of itself, particularly where you and your parents come from? Is it is it like a, is it the dominant religion? Is it kind of like a piece to a bigger pie of like, different like African religions or how does it kind of play together in those kind of senses? Yeah. So, um, my, my upbringing for the most part was, um, based in where I was born in, well, I was raised in a Protestant church. Uh, my mom was part of the choir. So we were in church basically like about three, three, four, maybe five times. Like, let's say, you know, there was Christmas, um, carols that needed that that needed rehearsal or things of that nature, or the kids that went to Sunday school were probably putting on a play for Christmas or something along those lines. So we'll be on ch in church probably. I want to say maybe three or four times throughout a week, almost. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So so I grew up in church for the most part before I came to the states. Uh, I came to the states when I was eight years old and. You know, the the first thing, the first shift was um, outside of, you know, just just the weather and how, you know, how much, dif how much different it was between um, Africa and, and, and the States. Uh, the, the biggest shift was the fact that my, my parents were no longer, they no longer really had the time to go to church, right? They had to basically take care of the family. And it yep. was a different, it was a different environment for them, for the both of them. Um, so church kind of kind of stopped for a while when we came to the came to the states because you know we were trying to you know make a, a living for ourselves and take care of well, our parents really um, I was too young to do anything at that time but um, yeah for the most part I grew up in in, um, a, in the Christian faith uh, my grandmother uh, was uh, on my on both my family side well my I'm not sure what my grandmother on my father's side was but on my mother's side she was a Catholic. Um, and, and it was a thing where in her household, you had to be in church every Sunday. Like, you could not miss church. Um, and, and for my father as well, he also had to be in church. You couldn't miss church. So church was basically part of our culture. It was, you know, it was what we did on a Sunday. Yep. Um, and growing up, what I would remember really, what I liked the most at the time on Sundays was that, you know, we would wake up early. Okay, I didn't really like that part, but we would wake yeah. up early. <laughs> and go to church and church the service went from probably i think it was like 8 30 9 a.m to about noon and then from noon when service was out you know we had the congregation that kind of sticks around for a bit chat amongst themselves and then around i want to say an hour later we would then take the trip to go visit my grandmother who was in another part of the town uh, and we would probably just spend the rest of the day there so every sunday the, the the what we did as as a family was go to church and then go visit my grandmother and just spend the rest of the day with her, um, and you know that was probably one of the most you know like thr thrilling parts for me growing up because 
it was it wasn't just my family that did that, but it was also my uncles and my aunts who were yep. also doing the same thing. So everyone, basically the whole family gathered around my grandmother on Sunday after church. So I got to play around with my cousins. Um, so it was it was it was it was a lot of fun during that time. Um, to answer the second question, um, really, so in Niger where I was born, um, the predominant the predominant uh, religion is Muslim. They're Muslim. It's a Muslim country, and for the most part, I, w- I want to say that uh, Christians, those of a Christian faith, were really the minority in that in that society. Okay. Um, being that it was a it was a uh, predominant uh, Muslim country, uh, we still didn't really feel the effect of, you know, it, it didn't feel like we were secluded or we were, you know, we were like a, a very small group because there were a lot of Christians as well um, in Niger, but the thing was like, you know, uh, maybe every year so often or every street you turn, you might find a mosque or it was mostly Muslim. So it was... I mean, most of my friends were Muslim growing up, um, so I have, I ha- even till now, so I have a lot of friends that are Muslim. But um, yeah, I didn't feel, I didn't feel any, any, uh, any shame in being Christian. At least, you know, the friends that I had at the time didn't really look at me any differently for, for, from because of my faith. Um, but there are always a few outliers every here and there that you know that might look at you a little differently for not having the same. Um, faith base as them, but yep. uh, for the most part, it was it was a it was a Muslim country. Cool, awesome, yeah. very cool. It's always that's always so interesting, man. It's like you know, like it's kind of just like I find culture fascinating. That's why, like, I write about it a lot. That's why I like talk to a lot of people. It's just like learning yeah. about the different things and and everything else, which is super cool. And now pivoting more into the book content, so we'll start out with the first chapter, obviously. So the first chapter, chapter one, after men and women as parents equal but different. So the thing that I noticed throughout all of this stuff, you kind of lay out basically the traditional roles of men and women in African society. And the, I want to focus more on the equal part because the big thing that you mentioned throughout a good good portion of this chapter is the discipline of both your parents, both your mother and your father in a lot of ways. So what role did that discipline play into your life as a major factor? And you, you cite a particular example from your mother and she was very big on kind of like making sure you guys did the right thing, you guys followed rules, everything else. So how did your parents' example of discipline affect you in a positive way? And what, what you, like looking back on it now, how do you see that really forming a big portion of who you are as a person in their discipline and the way they taught you guys? Yeah, so so to, to, to start off, you know, growing up, I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it really as... as yeah, really yeah, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people do. I don't think a lot of people do, man. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I always felt like I was being picked on, but but it was more, it was more only because I was I was the oldest of three. So that that puts another level of pressure, you know, on, on, on the individual, I want to say. But really, I think what made my parents worked so well was the fact that they were always in communication with one another. So it, it, I couldn't, I couldn't like sway my mother into, you know, allow me to do something that let's say my dad wasn't, you know, so, so inclined on me doing. Um, so like they, the, they were always kind of, you know, on the same wavelength. Um, they were always thinking 
basically in the same direction. They all, they both had the same values. They both had the same way of thinking. So everything was basically like, you know, I can ask my mom a question and then go to my dad and I will, I will get the same response and vice versa. Um, so outside from that, really like the, the, the discipline, you know, though it was tough, you know, looking back at it now, it, it has helped me in many ways. So I wasn't, I wasn't really always inclined in, in, in receiving that discipline to begin with. Um, I always felt like, like I mentioned earlier, always felt like, you know, I was being uh, uh, picked on or why are my parents so hard on me, et cetera. But, you know, as I got a little older, like, for example, it kind of started to make a little bit more sense to me as I got into high school and I started playing sports. You know, one thing that I always remember, whenever I'm doing anything really that I feel like is hard or, or has... Um, like uh, a different level of difficulty that I'm not really used to. I remember this one quote that my coach would always tell us, and it, and it was it would be like you know let's say you mess up on a drill or something, and your coach tells you to run to the baseline, and you know you have to do X amount of push-ups, and you gotta run suicides up and down the court. Um, like any time he's caught someone really you know not touching the baseline, whenever they get to the baseline, like. He would just look at you and basically just say, you know, at the end of the day, you're cheating yourself. And that's going yeah. to reflect when playing time comes because you're not going to be able to perform to the level where you want to perform because you're cheating yourself. You're always looking for shortcuts. So my parents didn't take shortcuts and they didn't like shortcuts. They wanted me to, to like stick for the long run, always go for the long run. Like it might be tough now, but it's easier to go through the suffering now and then later on have the easier life. But the thing is also that my mom, my mom will always say to me that my grandmother used to tell her was that in life, you know, there will always be another problem to solve. So having that mindset that you, that like once you solve one problem, just know that another one is on its way and just start to get your mind ready, like, you know, to, to be able to confront that. So being having that sense of resilience and, and, and knowing that, you know, in life, though my life isn't as hard as, nowhere close as hard to as what my parents have gone through, you know, everyone has their own challenges in life. So knowing that, you know, as I solve, as I'm going through any issue at the time, knowing that there will be, you know, an end to it, at some point there will be light at the end of the tunnel and knowing that another one is on its way, it's just part of life. It's just, you know, it's not something to kind of really, that will really sway me into, um, you know, giving up or, or looking for shortcuts, um, yeah. you know, so I think, I think that's the biggest takeaway that I got from my parents. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. And, and I love that you, we, it's, it's kind of, again, like kind of going back to like the, the culture point, it's like, no one gets it when they're the ones being disciplined as a child. <laughs> that's going to be like, that's but no, it, no, man, it's, it's so true. And I think that it's, um, it's, there was, like I said, I think, you know, before, uh, before we hopped on and, and during the call, I got, so many, so many gems just from, you know, the lessons you learned from your parents and, you know, your life growing up and everything. That's why I think the book is so good in a lot of ways. And so going into chapter two, African social and cultural values. So the biggest one that I got from this was that you need to have respect for your parents and for the innate ability to work hard. And so there is this thing that I have noticed with a lot of people as I, you know, I'm, I live in Austin, Texas right now. There are a lot of um, Hispanic immigrants, a lot of Mexican immigrants that come and they live in Texas specifically. And so like I'm surrounded by a lot of my friends down here are from immigrant families. Obviously, you're from an immigrant family. And I 
my parents or my family came over, uh, I think, three or four generations before me in the early 1900s in the Ellis Island days. And people were kind of shuttled through the ferries and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what I've noticed either, you know, I went to a pretty big college as well, what, which had a lot of people from either from China or from Japan or all over the world, really. And what I've noticed, and I think what a lot of people notice if they're being honest with themselves, is that people and children specifically from immigrant families always seem to work harder than the children that are from the domestic country. They always seem to kind of have like that inborn work ethic that seems to be hardwired into their brains and into their mentality, whether they go to something like college, for example, or they go into something really, really difficult or really hard or all that kind of stuff. So why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think they feel or that we feel and I think society feels that and maybe rightly so that immigrant children always seem to gener generally speaking and not always not trying to draw an absolute here, but they always try to seem to work harder than the children of that domestic country, whatever it is. Do you, do you have an opinion about that? Uh, I want to say it comes really down to um, the lack of, of let me not say the lack of. So I, I think it really comes down to privilege, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just thinking about, for example, right, what would be considered, you know, a, a tough neighborhood in any society, um, right? A tough neighborhood where you might have poverty and things of that nature and, you know, um, housing might not be the best and it just looks really run down. Um, that poor society, those, those guys living in that society in comparison to, like, for example, where my father came from, you know, those are two different levels of poverty, right? Sure. Like, yeah. Like, for example, here in the States, privileges that, first of all, yeah, in the States, like, privileges that the, that you might have here in comparison to a um, country like Africa, a third world country, or any other third world country, or the benefits that you would get just from the government itself, you know, government assistance, you know, allows yeah. you to be able to, in some cases, um, you know, live rent free, depending on your income, um, your income threshold. And, and in some cases, you might be able to have food stamps, so you're able to fend face, um, be able to get, you know, some kind of food. Um, whereas for someone like my father coming from a third country and his, and his situation, or my mother for that, um, for that matter, you, you kind of have to make away for yourself you have no other option it's either you get up and go to work so that you can feed yourself and your family or you just sit there and i guess you wither away because other than that really i think i think it's 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 it's, it's just um it's just the lack of uh i want to say uh information and and knowing what to do with that information um so for example a lot of the well one of the main things that 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 um, I noticed when I came to the states was that um, you know a lot of a lot of guys here are so I want to say free to do kind of like whatever it is that they want um, and not really have like a, a sense of direction and whereas like what I noticed with my father was that he always had a plan in mind and he always knew what he was going yeah. and what he was doing. So that was really important for him. Um, so that that alone already starts to, to, to guide you into 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 you know um, developing this kind of of, of of 
I'm gonna use this word so many times, resilience where like you you know you also know, you know, coming back from like let's say you come from um Africa, knowing what you know then and how your life was back then and knowing the opportunity that you're seeing here in the States and knowing what you can make of the opportunity, I think that's what really um makes the difference between the two the two um the two uh societies. Um Yeah, no. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I, I think it's kind of you know it's it's some variation to that of what I think everyone comes down to in terms of that type of an answer, which leads ironically into chapter three: takes a village to raise a child. And I thought like this is something I, I I've been waiting to tell you this ever since I came up with these questions last night. That um, so you tell the story about I think you were with your mother at a certain point. You went into a bank, and then there was a kid around either your age or around your age, kind of having a temper tantrum in the middle of the bank. And she kind of looked at him and she was like, you know, if that basically like if that was in our community, if that was my child, like that would yeah. that I would put a stop to that right quick, everything else, which is so funny because that child at one point, I remember this vividly because my father came on down on me really, really hard after this. I was that yeah. child at one point in my life where I was yeah. like, I was that person kind of like having a whatever type of thing, like a you know, temper tantrum, whatever, in the middle of a public place. He obviously did not you know, think that favorably of me throughout that whole type of thing in that situation, which I thought was super funny because it's kind of like the same thing only when you were kind of on the outside and I was on the inside of it. But, and you kind of allude into this where back in your home country, your home nation, a lot of people, like other parents, even if they weren't in your household, were allowed to discipline you. They were allowed to punish you. They were allowed to tell your parents basically like, I was, I saw your child misbehaving, so I took action on this, all these other type of things, which I found super fascinating what i got from all of those type of things was basically just the overall importance of community and accountability into your life so i think that you know just in, it, we need people and i think the standard is a good example of this it's not like a, na a nation community it's kind of like a digital community we all are kind of into but we help hold each other accountable we hold each other to quote unquote the high standard that we all aspire to be in life so in relation to that so what role do you think that community has played in accountability in your life, whether that's kind of either your neighbors or your family or the people you've bonded with? And in, as an extension of that, who do you depend on currently to hold you accountable throughout all your trials and tribulations you go through in life? Um, so, so yeah, like, like the, the, that was one of the biggest things. That's another one of the biggest things that I noticed about, about living in the States as opposed to living back home, where, you know, growing up back home, you know, you have, especially growing up, you have this sense of reverence and this sense of respect that you feel that you must um, abide by when you see someone who's older than you, you know, yeah. in your vicinity. There's a certain way where you start to behave. Like, if I'm just among my friends, you know, I might not, you know, I might fool around a bit, but let's say an adult wants to walk around in the room or wants to be within our vicinity, then we kind of start to scream up ourselves and kind of start to like make sure we're behaving. And the reason why that is, is because you know, back home in Africa, like all, like part of the culture, what it is really to, to respect your elders, right? We have to kind of um, obey to them because like they, they know better than, they have more life experience with them. And so what they're, what they're saying, um, yeah. Basically, what what they're trying to do is to make sure that they got us down the right path. And being, I don't know really what what kind of like um, brought this about, but I think 
I just noticed that that's just how everyone kind of behaved. Like, I might go to the grocery store. That that was another thing, the freedom back home, right? I was free at, at my age, like seven, eight years old, to go down the street real quick, grab some food or buy some, some things for my mother from the grocery store and bring it right back because it wasn't that far. Yeah. But also, if I misbehaved, my mom knows the, the, the clerk at the store. My mom knows... Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, yeah, the guys around around that that she you may see around the neighborhood. So if you were to misbehave, you know, you will see Uncle Tommy or whoever that mm-hmm. may see you, yeah. and you know they will report back to your mom like, hey, your kid was acting, was running the muck outside, um, you know, and and they weren't afraid to discipline you before they brought you back to your mom, who would then discipline you some more. So it was always that that kind of thing in the back of your head where you know you had to make sure you. You, you you were acting, um, you were behaving properly. So, for example, when I came to the States, I remember being in class um, and, and you know, I would hear, like, students, like, you know, at the time, when I first came, mind you, I didn't really speak English, but you, you can start, you can really tell by the attitude that that um, kid has or how they're behaving when, when they're being approached by, by someone who has authority over them. So let's say the teacher or the principal, whoever it may be. So I just saw the attitude and I was just like, oh my God, like this is, this is different. <laughs> I say that because I remember also being back home in Africa, how like how much respect was given to the teacher. And if they're like, let's say you misbehaved or I think I also mentioned this in the book. What we did, in, in, I remember in school was that there was a lesson that was taught throughout the day and whatever homework we that was given to us, we had like a, a certain portion that we had to kind of like memorize, and then we had to recite it back to the teacher the following day. And yep. if you weren't able to recite those words, you know, you will probably you will get disciplined in front of this in front of the class. So, and the thing is, if you stepped out of the line, the teachers weren't afraid to put you back in line. And then you know what will follow up with that would be you know they will call the principal or they will call they would call your parents. And most of the time when you call your parents, first of all, your dad or your mom, if it's your dad, good luck. If it's your mom, she might she might pull your ear a bit. If it's your dad, he will, you know, most likely in that temperament probably, depending on how bad what, um, what you did was, probably discipline you some more there in class in front of everyone after you were just disciplined by your teacher and then discipline you on the way home and then you know, like like th- there's a lot of discipline that goes along. So so seeing the difference here and how you know students would talk back to the teachers and yell back and you know I would be in class with other other um, um, guys who probably came from like Nigeria and we would just look at one another like Yo, this is crazy man. Imagine yeah. this, is yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. So so that 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 is definitely one of the biggest things that I noticed. Um, and really to answer the other question. When it comes down to holding myself accountable, you know, outside of the guys from the standard, um, I want to say it was really my parents that first, or that, or that are the first one that kind of hold me accountable. Like, hey, Kel, you know, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z by this date, or you know, you said you had this amount of work to do. You know, you don't have really, you don't really have time to slack off. And then outside from that, then comes my younger sister, who's four years younger than me. You know, she's always like, hey, on my back, you know, let's say, you know, I have, um, we have a calendar that we shared with each, with one another and she gets to see everything that's on my list that needs to get done for the day. And, you know, at the end of the week, 
Um, we don't do, we're not doing it as much as we're supposed to right now. But at the end of the week, the idea is to like sit down and just talk like, hey, so what did you get done? What did you not get done? Uh, was this as important or not? You know, so having those check-ins with my siblings also helped me to like make sure I'm, you know, I'm staying on track and I'm doing what I need to do. So. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Chapter four is about strictness. And you have a quote that you repeat a couple times through the chapter, which I thought was very interesting. I think this is from your mother too. Um, I will not follow friends. And it's basically about the importance of, to your point about, you know, the importance of listening to authority. And so this is kind of an interesting thing that I talked about. So in, in which ways are you yourself strict and in which ways have you deviated slightly from your parents? Because obviously we have kind of a, there's a generational gap, I think, between like, you know, things that you take from your parents. And I think that in most cases, it's wise to take a lot from your parents while you also have to deviate slightly from kind of like everything else, depending on like the culture, the times we're in, kind of how you want to present yourself to the world, all that kind of stuff. So in what ways did that strictness imposed uh, from your parents and from your culture in what ways do you follow that? And what are some ways that you really don't follow that as much in terms of the traditional way you were brought up by your parents? Uh, to answer your question, I, I think that I'm really strict when it comes to trying to, like, when it, when it really comes to, like, my work, right? The field mm-hmm. that I'm in. I try to, I try to, like, make sure I'm learning as much and, and, and I'm trying to hold myself accountable to make sure, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm providing you know, not only the value that, that that they are expecting from me, you know, I'm delivering what it is that they need from me, but I'm also trying to exceed and, and try to go above and beyond that. Not only because, you know, um, you know, as a good employee, this is what you should do, but mainly because also I don't really want to say, I don't really want to work for, for someone else um, and mm-hmm. build someone business my entire life so that's one of the one of the things that pushes me and allows me to kind of like um you know whenever i have to work late or whatever the case may be you know like you know whatever i had to do to 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 get a project done that's what i i you know i tend to kind of like just put my head down and get to work so it's really it's really it's really that 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 is the biggest thing because as far as as long as i've known my father has always been working. Whether it was his business back home, where you know he was, he would always be at the office or in the shop, um, or when it's, when he came here, he, was, he though though he was he was gone most of the time, especially when we first came to the states. Um, like work was a thing where you know it was like almost non-negotiable, and it wasn't always because you know you were working for someone else, but rather you're working in order to kind of like build this life for yourself where you can one day um, earn your freedom in a sense. You know, like for mm-hmm. example, my father opening up his own business is him gaining his freedom um, from working as an apprentice um, in. in someone else's business so that's one way in which i'm strict and growing up uh another another way in which i was strict was really like when it came to like my physical health i remember like first joining like um um, the basketball team you know growing up i wasn't i wasn't the tallest i didn't really start growing really because i mean when i met you you're you're really tall so that's that's actually (laughs) that's that's actually very funny so that's uh, that's hilarious yeah so so like i our growth spurt started when I want to say around around seventh or eighth grade, so I guess I guess I, okay. I had a pretty yeah. early start. I had a, per, a pretty early start, but you know I remember being you know kind of short and chubby, and when I once I started playing sports, you know I kind of 
wanted to make sure I was the, the, the strongest on the team or whatever the case may be. So, like, I remember nights where I would probably, if I went to sleep without working out, I would wake up at, like, 12 a.m., make sure I put in my two hours of workout, and then shower, go back to sleep for, like, another hour or two before getting up to go to school. So, like, that was another way in which I, I, I was strict on myself. And, and, and uh, I'm forgetting the second question, if you could remind me. Yeah, um, it's kind of just like, you know, in, I think you answered both of them, actually. So kind of like, you know, what ways and maybe what ways kind of I think, like, are you not as strict as your parents either were on themselves or were on you guys? Like, what ways have you kind of, like, let yourself breathe a little bit in terms of that kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah, so I think I think that um, really when it comes down to the discipline portion, right, I feel, I feel that though the discipline was definitely necessary, especially in my case because I was a stubborn kid growing up, um, the the... the Discipline as far as like, you know, getting a beating or whatever the case may be. I, I, I try not to be as as tough, especially on my younger brother, uh, who is 10 years younger than me. And, you know, I when when he was younger, I, I was a lot tougher on him. But I noticed that I didn't really like that coming from my parents. So I kind of started to deviate from that and try to like, you know, try to talk to him and explain to him. And, and try to do more of that rather than than you know just just automatically going to like you know, um, and like trying to beat him or trying to discipline it, just to discipline him in another fashion. But also to my parents' defense, they didn't always really just just go ahead and just you know let's say I misbehaved or anything. Depending on this on on how bad I may have acted out of line. You know, like whatever the action was, the repercussions matched. You know. Yeah. So, so let's say, let's say I don't know. Let's I, I was outside and I tried to steal candy from the store or something. I was definitely getting beaten when I get home. But let's say I didn't wash the dishes or I didn't take out the garbage that night. You know, the discipline there wouldn't be as severe. Um. So so I just try to make sure I walk that thin line between between those two and and not overdo it when it comes to you know trying to discipline. Um, and in a, in a hard fashion where I'm trying to, to beat my younger brother or whatever the case may be. I'm also now trying to explain and like, hey, this is what you did. This is why you don't do it. Um, and giving you chances, you know, to, 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 to make it right. And, you know, if now, if, if, if you keep on repeating the same thing over and over, then you're clearly not listening, which is what my dad did. You know, he would have like a rule of three where he would explain it to you nicely the first time. The second time, he might raise his voice a bit. But the third time, there would be, you know, he's no longer talking to you. He's no longer explaining to you yeah. why you did is wrong. It was just more so like, all right, now you're just not listening to me. And I have to find another way to get through to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like it. I thought, you know, going into the next chapter, into chapter five, it was it was a really, really great segue. I don't know if you meant to do this or kind of just happened by happenstance, but what I found is that, and chapter five is entitled Never Failing Support System. And so the fifth chapter is really interesting coming after the fourth chapter because what I have found, and my parents were, were very strict on me as well, what I found is that the strictest parents are all are also by consequence always the most supportive parents. And they're very, very you know supportive of their children. They invest a lot into their children because I think when parents are strict on their kids, they're doing it out of love, and I think the other side of strictness is that support factor you that you kind of you know mentioned inside of the book and that you noticed throughout my life and I, that you noticed throughout your life as well. And you say things like they 
were always, you know, helping you with their homework. They were always kind of, you know, making sure they were encouraging you. They were doing a bunch of other things that were really, really important that all kids need to kind of happen. So do you think that that theory is generally correct in terms of parents that are really strict also being very supportive? Because I, that's something that I've noticed and that kind of, you know, think your book really brought that theory out to me, but I'm curious to get your thoughts about that. Yeah. So I, th- I think that, I think like to, to, I, I think I, I would agree with you on that because um, not only did I see that behavior with my parents, but I also saw it with other other f- close friends of mine who, or let's say, are from Ghana or from Nigeria. Their parents were also pretty much all the same. It's like they all have the same way of thinking and behavior, and it's because of the culture back home, where you know they, you know they 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 will be strict on you. But, you know, at the end of the day, they, what they really want from you is to see you happy and being able to flourish and kind of, you know, the thing that I noticed, well, it, it, and I think I see this with most parents, if not all, is that they want to be able to brag about their kid and like, hey, yeah, this is my son and this is what he's done or this is my daughter and this is what she's doing. Um, so, like, they, whenever we're doing um, anything positive or anything you know that they feel could could be advantageous to us like my parents were always like the first to support me like, let's say i wanted to open up a business and you know i am lucky where i'm able to go to my parents and like hey this is the business plan this is what i want to do and what do you think about it and with that they will also give me the criticism like hey Kel, this this doesn't make any sense you know how are you able mm-hmm. how like what do you want to really really be selling how are you want to make the money from this or whatever the case may be so that strictness does not go away, but the support is always there where, all right, now I just have to go back to the drawing board, fix the business plan, come back to them with something that actually makes sense and for them to actually invest in it, you know. Um, and, and, and like having that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset that my parents have, they love to see when I uh, come to them and like speak to them about, hey, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I want to do. And, you know, they love to see that and then they really want to, they really like to invest in those kind of ideas that I, that I would have. So yeah. writing this book, for example, I, I, I kid you not, I would sit down with my parents like, hey, mom, like you remember this one time when I did this, like, why did you like react in such a manner? Or why didn't you react in such a manner? And same thing with my father. And they would sit down and we would have conversations on hours on yeah. end, you know, supporting me, giving me content to write the book. Um, so like they like that's one thing that I've noticed. Though they're strict, they're also very they're more than willing to help you in any venture that you really go through. And at the end of the day it just comes down to love. Like it's that's what love does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's so funny because like I remember like my parents are definitely for me, you know, the most I would say engaged and the people that I tell the most about my writing process and kind of like I'm thinking of this is like an idea I'm toying around with. Like, what do you guys think about this? Or like, what is your perspective on this since you've experienced this before or, you've, or we've talked about this or you think about this before? So I think that that's, it's super cool. And you can, they kind of become like, you know, your closest confidants in that sort of a sense yeah. because they have been and they've like really, they've led by example and they've lived a lot of life. And they've done a lot of other things that, you know, are kind of, you know, different than you, but also very, very similar and things you can do to kind of help your life in a lot of ways. And I think that, in, in that sense, going into chapter six, religious attendance and practice, this is the, probably, I think, the most, uh, the, if not the best story, one of the most unique stories in the book about your father coming to America for the, from the first time and him only speaking, I believe, uh, his native language and then French, right? So he was kind of, 
he goes to America, and I, I guess you know, and I would like to have you tell the story because I'm obviously not doing it very much justice. But he, uh, he, you know, he's kind of like he comes to America. He obviously doesn't he doesn't know anybody. He's kind of looking for this, you know, looking for this one person. He wanders around New York, which is kind of a dangerous proposition in and of itself. And he eventually finds this person yeah. out of kind of like the, you know, just the alignment of the stars, or kind of God's timing and that kind of a presence. So was so first of all, um, please tell that story because it's an awesome story. And yeah. second of all, was that kind of a paradigm shift both for you and for I would say maybe your family in general for saying like, you know, God exists because without God intervening in this specific scenario, this probably would not have happened the way it happened in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So so let me start with my my, my, my dad's story when he came to the States. So the way that started was with a friend of his that was getting married and he was getting married in Connecticut. Um, and my father was invited to, to the wedding, which he came, but it was really only for the wedding that day. So he came to, oh, okay. yeah, he came to the U S that day and everything went, was smooth sailing that day. You know, he came, he attended the wedding, everything went well. And I think it's a couple of days later he went back home, but he noticed that, you know, the way of life and opportunities from talking to his friend and other people that attended the wedding, like, you know, there's so much more opportunity here in the States. So he said, you know what, I want to try and relocate our family to the States. Um, so that within itself, a lot, a lot, a lot of adversity came with that, you know, um, what he was doing back home with his business and everything and kind of like, you know, just dropping that or selling it and then just moving to another country where he knew basically no one besides his friend yeah. um, who, with whom he lost contact with. Um, and, and basically he was just left out on his own. So he came to the States, I want to say uh, in the year of 99, which was the year my sister was born. And at that time, it was just him. It was just himself. He had no one there with him. He was traveling with no one, and it was my my sister, myself, and my mom were like kind of left back home, um, for the time being. Um, so when my dad landed in in New York, a friend of his was supposed to come and pick him up, and you know take him to to the apartment where he would be staying for for an extended amount of time, but no one showed up. And when he landed at the time, he only had, I believe he had said $100 in his pocket. That's all he had along, along with a small suitcase and a, a briefcase in his hand. Um, and it was cold. <laughs> it was really cold. So I remember him saying that he was staying in the airport trying to figure out a way to call someone. He didn't speak any, um, any English, really. He just only spoke French and his native language. And, and, you know, he was just basically just stranded. And uh, he noticed that, like, there were a lot of other Africans that were walking past and a lot, of, a lot of other immigrants that he noticed were walking past, but none really spoke his language. So he was kind of just, you know, in the middle of nowhere. He felt lost, right? And I remember him saying that, you know, he, he got to a point where he got hungry, he went to buy food, and that took away probably $20 from his wallet. So remember, he started with $100, now you're down to $80, right? So it came that that it was now nighttime. It was about maybe 5 or 6 p.m. And, you know, in the wintertime, it gets dark pretty fast. So he looks outside and he notices that it's getting late. And there was a taxi driver that came in the airport and noticed that he was still there, even though he 
he was there also in the morning when my dad landed. So he can't, he approached my dad and he told him like, hey, look, you know, you're you're still here, you know, and if the airport, if it comes time, you know, for the last flights and everything, and you don't have somewhere to go or someone to contact, they will deport you and send you right back um, where you came from. So he kind of spoke to my dad and, and my dad knew just enough English to kind of make out what he was trying to say. And mm-hmm. the guy, the guy asked him like, hey, where are you going? Like, if there's anywhere I can help, then, you know, I'll, I'll take you where you're going. And my dad didn't really know where he was going, but he had a very vague idea of, of who he was looking for. And at the time, um, I guess a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of the newcomers or most of the Africans kind of resided in one, um, one particular area in, in, in Harlem, in New York. So okay. he basically, he basically um, told my dad, like, hey, look, I don't know who you're looking for, but it could be that he might be here, right? And my dad said, you know what? I don't want to go back. Let me just keep going. So he got into the into the taxi with him. That took him about another $20, $30 um, when the guy dropped him off at the at a restaurant um, where a lot of Africans would probably come in and, and get their food from there. And he kind of was just standing by the door, like trying to, you know, talk to anyone that would come to the door and try to ask them for direction or anything of that matter. And no one was really able to help him until like about a couple of hours, a couple of hours in, there was this one guy that came in and he noticed that he started to speak the same language that he spoke, um, their, the, his native language. And that kind of like just excited him. And, you yeah. know, <laughs> he 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 approached he approached um my dad approached him and kind of told him like what what his situation was and who it was that he was looking for and the guy the guy didn't really know who my dad was looking for but he said you know what it might be this building over here so 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 my dad went from landing into a country where he knew no one and the guy that was supposed to come pick him up basically you know left him and didn't really respond, so he was left by himself. Into and he went from that into getting into a cab with someone that he knew nothing about. So that that of itself is already dangerous, you know. You never know what could happen. And then that brought him to a restaurant where he met another guy who was going to take him to a building <laughs> where he knew no one. So so he's just literally blind. Like that's what my that's dad would say. Like you, so, yeah, so crazy, so crazy. Yeah, so, so my dad was. He would say all the time, like, he was literally blind. He didn't know where he was going, but something inside of him just told him, like, just keep going, like, just keep going. Keep looking and keep asking and keep going. So that's what he did. So the guy took him to, to a building. And as my dad stepped out of the car at that time, mind you, every time he, you know, took a ride from someone, it wasn't that the ride was free. So that took money away from him. So my dad was running out of money. So he went from $100, spent, spent money, some money on some food, that brought him down to about 80, took the first cab to the restaurant, that took him about another $40. So now he's down to $40. And that, and he met that guy at the restaurant, that probably took another $25 or so, leaving him with, let's say, about $15. Um, $15, $20. So, so now at this point, he's basically dry. He has nothing, nothing in his wallet left. And he said, God, like, I need something. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know. So as he was stepping out of the car, the guy that there was a, as he was stepping out of the car, there was a guy walking out of that building. And that guy just so happened to recognize my dad. 
from back home because of the business that he had going on back home, fixing TVs and fixing um, being an electrician and everything like that. So, so he recognized my dad and he called up. He called my dad by his first name. So my dad was surprised. He said, I don't recognize you. I don't know you. And yeah. he told he told him that hey, like you came to my house one day to help my dad fix some stuff around the house and everything. So I remember you. So so that is kind of like the story. Like he that that the guy that he was looking for basically was was an old client of his, but he has no he had no way of like finding his way around to meet meeting that guy. Like it, it was it was just God's doing. It was just God, God guiding him throughout that day. But that was that was really, I mean, to him at least, he felt like God was the one that guided him and spoke to him. You know, like basically guided him all the way through getting to that in front of that building and 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 finally meeting the person who it was he was looking for. So that's the that story. Is so cra- that is, I'm sorry, that that is so crazy. I and, and like I was kind of like you know you, I remember you kind of pasted it out too where you kind of alluded to this as well a couple of minutes ago where you were saying like. Like twenty dollars here, like thirty dollars here, like twenty, like getting like down to like almost where he had nothing at a certain point. He's kind of like doing all the stuff, so it's like a time bomb at the end of everything else. But it's just yeah. it, it's 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 amazing, bro. Like it re- it really is, and I think that it's it's kind of like a testament to you know your father's kind of just his is you know you use the word resilience a lot. It's a great word to use here as well, and kind of just everything in terms of just that that grit that you have to have to kind of do what you need to do out here to kind of make it anywhere, but particularly make it as a a literal almost fish out of water in a new in a new country in a new environment wherever you're kind of in in a certain type of thing and i think um going into chapter seven uh guidance counselors of life we talked about this a little bit earlier on but you know so while your parents were also strict as they began to trust you they also began to be kind of flexible with how you chose to live your life and do all the things you want to do like writing this book for example and all this kind of stuff so did that give you confidence or did that scare you when they basically said you're kind of raised in this very kind of like you know this is kind of the way we go about things as a family this is kind of what we want you to do this is everything that we kind of have for you in this kind of a sense but when they and this is kind of what my experience was too was they were my parents were very very strict growing up but then at a certain point it kind of flips and they say like you know we just want you to be happy and live a good life so here is all this autonomy to do this and that yeah. kind of really threw me for a loop. I remember when that happened. First of all, I was like, "Well, hold on, you're not gonna tell me what to do for all this other really complicated stuff and all that kind of stuff." So, so what was that reaction kind of like for you? And they were kind of just saying, like, you know, like Kel, we raised you to be this way, but we also want you to live your own life as an autonomous, uh, sovereign person. Like, what was yeah. what was that kind of mindset like in you when that kind of first started to happen for you? Um. So, so really, like, like you mentioned, like the 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 freedom kind of started coming from like when I was in high school and I started to play sports. So I would always be on the road traveling. So they kind of had to start, you know, developing this sense of trust that, all right, we kind of, we already told Cal what he should and shouldn't do. He knows how to behave um, in society and things of that nature. So that kind of started to give me the breathing room. Um, and and like, like, like you mentioned, like being, being growing up in that, in that, in such a strict family, like, at first, you don't really notice it, but really, for the most part, I want to say all the decisions were kind of basically made for you, or made, you know, like uh, they were. They you had to kind of basically consult them before taking any major decisions or anything of that of that sort. But you know, growing up, 
when I first, I want to say like the biggest, the biggest shift came when I got to college, right? You know, I no longer had any parents for that matter around. It was just myself and all my other, all my, and my entire cohort, all the other students in my class, and all the other college students. So there was a lot going on, a lot going on, you know. Um, and though the the thing that I noticed was just that even though I wasn't, I was no longer around, you know, my parents per se. I still had their voice in the back of my head whenever I wanted to kind of like do something I shouldn't do. Um, and, yeah. and I think I'm pretty sure like the Bible says it somewhere where, you know, raise a kid um, in, in a certain way. And when he gets older, he wouldn't stray from that path. So that was literally, literally like the, the, the way I grew up. So having those strict parents kind of grew this sense of consciousness within me where like I'm always like I'm also accountable to myself. It's like my conscience, like it's like, even though sometimes or many times I do fall and still do the wrong thing, many times my conscience would tell me like, hey, like you, are you sure you wanna do this? Because this, is, this isn't this is right. Um, so that that built a sense of, 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 um, of, of relationship with myself where I don't really, I'm able to consult with myself and like kind of like, you know, think like for myself, hey, like, what will my parents say? Or, you know, kind of have that talk with myself before I even go to my parents. So if I should, most of the time, I don't really go to them anymore because I'm not able to make those decisions for myself. But the, for the very first time, when when my parents were, weren't around, though I was, um, it was a, little, a bit nerve-wracking, I also felt really relieved to, like, kind of, like, start to make those decisions for myself. Like, I remember... Um, finally getting my first apartment and moving into that apartment and, you know, paying my own bills, et cetera, et cetera. Everything just felt so, yeah. so natural. Like, like this is what you're supposed to do, you know? So all of that stuff kind of, though it felt a bit um, nerve wracking, it also felt very freeing and it also felt very, very like progressive. Like I'm doing, like I'm doing better than I was yesterday. And it was just, you know, that kind of just built a momentum where I'm just now just, you know, keep, growing and, and stacking on top yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, it, it's it's so it's so interesting to kind of like, you know, you have, it's a shift that no one really tells you is going to happen. And I think I'm kind of going through a similar one right now where it's like, you need to kind of break away a little bit in order to form your own identity as a person and everything else in terms of everything else. You want right. to hold on to the stuff that's good. And, you know, in your case, in my case, thankfully, it, it's a lot of it is good. So you want to keep on yeah. to a lot of it. But you also have to kind of you know learn how to trust yourself as well, which is always a really really hard thing to do, especially when you get out of the world. You're dealing with kind of scary adult things like bills and all that kind of stuff, and you want to make sure that everything is kind of you know set in its ways and you know, all all that kind of stuff. So it's yeah. um it's very interesting for sure. And leading into chapter eight, proverbs and metaphors, the one that you I think repeat a lot, and the one that stuck out to me was that every day is for the thief and one day for the owner, which is something that I think your parents told you a lot all the time. So mm-hmm. if, um, if you could explain what that metaphor means and kind of, you know, both to you and to us, like what does that metaphor mean? <laughs> so growing up, like I said, I was, I was pretty stubborn. So I did a lot of things that were uncalled for. I would always be getting into trouble and doing something. So whenever I did something, I would try to cover it up, right? And let's say it took my parents maybe a week or so to figure out what it is that I swept under the rug. You know, my mom would get upset and she would always tell me like, you know, like every day is for the thief and one day is for the owner. Meaning, basically, um, 
I know there's a there's another way to say this in like there's another saying um where basically the one 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 day or later um the roosters will come to roast or something along those lines. I'm not sure. But basically yeah, the come home to roost, basically. Yeah, exactly. So so eventually yeah, eventually yeah. all the things that you do will catch up to you. Basically saying that, you know, if 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 for example, there was a there's a dessert that my mom made or she still makes um, that I really loved growing up, and it was called it's called Diggy, and it's basically this this um this creamy um uh, I wish I knew how to explain it, but but it's it's basically a dessert uh, with milk and 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 um and it, oh man I don't know how to exactly how I should how I should explain it, but basically what I would do is when she makes it is I would sneak in the middle of the night and drink probably like half of it. Right, and what I would do is just pour a bunch of milk inside of it, and when she first makes it, it's pretty thick, right? And me thinking, you know, like with my, like my, my, uh, what do I say? With me thinking the way I do, I, I decide to pour, you know, just regular milk within it after I probably drank half of it to fill it back yeah. up to make it look, yeah, to make it look like you know, like I haven't touched it. And the thing is that, you know, when you do that, it gets looser and looser every time you do it. So, though she may not have caught it the first time, you know, like I said, I drank half of it. I probably didn't. Maybe I drank like a quarter or, or, or just a little bit from it. But, you know, like I would basically, eventually she would find out that, you know, as it gets looser and looser, that someone has been drinking from it or whatever the case may be. Um, so, basically, that's what, that's what the saying is, you know. Every day is for the thief and one day is for the owner. So whatever you do, you know, and try to hide or everything you do in the darkness, sooner or later, someone or it will be revealed. Either someone finding out about it or it will be revealed through your incompetence and whatever it is you're doing. It goes back to what my coach said. That's why it's cheating yourself, you know. You know, you may be cheating yourself now. You're not seeing, you know, the, the immediate uh, the repercussions of that, of that, of, of, of you looking for shortcuts but eventually you know you won't be able to perform as well as someone who hasn't been you know cheating or looking for a shortcut right that person will always outwork you so that's basically what the saying means yeah no i i love it man and i think it's kind of just like it's different ways of saying the same thing right so it's kind of like you know just kind of you know you take different things and they all kind of mean the same thing but it's um it, it it's cool, man. I, I love I love that part of it. I love that one a lot. So, chapter nine: types of parenting styles. This one was also very interesting to me because you kind of outlay the four types of parenting styles that are generally seen in kind of all cultures. It's kind of like if one way or another they break down into mostly one of those four buckets. And you have this this passage inside of the inside of the chapter that you believe that some African immigrant principles in in large in general should be adopted en masse in America. So what specific ones of those do you think would make the most impact if, let's just say, like, for example, like our generation, when we start having kids and everything, we have a couple principles that we could take from Kel's a news book to adopt and pass down to our children. Which ones do you think that would stand out to you that you would recommend to those people? Hmm. I would say, I would say, um, the, the, Basically, the very the biggest value or the biggest the biggest thing that I noticed that our our uh, my upbringing had was that 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 
sense of respect for someone who's older than you and and mm-hmm. being able to listen um to them when you're spoken to right so i feel like that's probably one of the biggest thing that i feel like um people should take away in in being that you know especially also with, with not all, every adult right um probably has the best interest right for you but for the most part you know being having that that sense of of respect for someone who's older than you will will you you start to understand that you know like let's say your parents right we have kids one day where if they're if if you are able to instill that that sense of respect within them then they will always be able to to know first of all that you have their best interests in mind and therefore they will always be able to come to you for advice you know because it's one thing if 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 i grow up and you know i don't really have that sense of respect for my dad because he's not always he doesn't have that level of integrity you know for himself or the family really then how can i really come to you for advice for anything right so my dad always had that sense of integrity where he's always doing what he says he's going to do and that also led me to have the confidence to know that you know when he tells me to do something that for the most part it is for my own well-being being that you know he himself was able to take care of the family you know so being able to take that advice from someone who has much more life experience than you and taking those experiences that he had and then using it to your advantage to make sure you don't fall into those same traps as, as he had fallen into will make your life a lot easier in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And building off of that, chapter 10, The Art of Biblical Parenting. And you reference kind of core values that every person must, must teach their children. And so like this can either be in a Christian sense or it can be in kind of a just a raw value sense. And I'd be actually interested. I, I wrote the book on values, so I kind of am interested in always asking you know, people this in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. But, so what, 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 yeah, so like what what do you feel is the most important, I would say, core value that every parent needs to teach their kid, in your opinion? Mm, the most important core value. Um... I want to say, uh, I want to say probably being able to to have a level of um, of trust within yourself to do you know to do everything that you're set out to do. Um, one thing that I noticed about my parents was that though as much as strict as they were and as tough as they were, they were always always encourage me and and you know always be able to lift me up whenever they say i didn't do anything um to my best ability or i fall short in some way they're they're always encouraging me and that sense of encouragement always allowed me to know first of all that you know i will fail right there are times where i'm not going to be um, I won't be up to par or I won't perform as well as I want to. And with that, it's just a learning experience, right? And that's what life is. It's a, it's a learning experience, basically. And what you do with that is you stack them together and then you make sure not to repeat those experiences and make sure that you learn from them so that, you know, when the next time, because what, what I noticed with life is, well, at least so far, is that, you know, you tend to make the same mistakes until you learn from them, right? And yeah. having that that confidence within yourself to having that confidence within yourself to know that all right you know like though I didn't perform well enough this time 
take a step back, evaluate it, and then kind of like look where you fell short and improve on that for the next for the next go around. So that when that next time comes, now you, you you're taking another step towards winning or taking another step towards um, um, achieving that goal that you want. So that sense of um, I think that sense of confidence that my parents instilled within me allowed me to to you know be able to stand tall whenever I'm let's say in a meeting with a client and you know I have that sense of integrity or that sense of, of, of competence whenever I'm talking to someone being that you know I, I know what it is that I'm talking about or or I have faith within not only myself but also within God in, in being that I will be able to to make this work for the better. So I think that's the one of the biggest thing that I feel a parent can instill within the child and it's, it's confidence, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, man. I love it. Chapter 11, safety regulations, funny do's and don'ts around African parents. I, I thought this was hilarious. And I thought specifically um, number 13, I don't know, I don't know if you remember number 13, but it, it was basically kind of like, it was one of the more informal ones where it basically kind of said like, you know, I think it was something of the essence of like, don't lie to your mother because like women can smell lies. Like there's nothing else. And like, you'll find out <laughs> and she will kind of like, you know, it, it's just like, you know, try to lie to your dad. Don't try to lie to your mom. Like all that type of thing. true. And so, um, you know, I, I, you know, this is, this is really, really funny. And so like what specifically, you know, what inspired that section of the book kind of just to shake everything up, especially as we're getting towards the end of the book, and do you have a favorite one of those that you put inside of that one that you think is 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 really either really funny or that really sticks out to you? Um, I want to see. I want to see. It's probably not the funniest one, but the biggest thing that I noticed is the fact that you know whenever you walk into the room with your parents or anything like that, you know you you must greet them, right? It's yeah. Like, it's like it's like a, that that it goes back to that whole sense of like respect and like you know let's say I'm coming home and you know and my parents are there or like I'm or they're walking in you know you must greet them that that's one of the first things but what really inspired that was the fact that um <laughs> is the fact that like it's, it's it's funny you mentioned it but it's literally the one you spoke about where you know my mom anytime I lied to her it's like. The way she looks at me is it's like she already knows the answer before she Thank asks you. Yeah. So it's like yeah. <laughs> it's like how do I even get away with this? So so like you can't really lie to your to your mom. And being 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 that I I, I noticed that one, I kind of wanted to like also like I don't know make the book you know fun for the reader. So I wanted to like kind of like look for other other um, aspects or any other situations where something similar has happened or any other rules that you know we might have um, with parents or dealing with with immigrant parents in, in in general. So I think that's what kind of inspired that last that last chapter. Sure, sure, awesome. Yeah. Chapter twelve, conclusion and tips. And and I thought that this there was a lot of wisdom here. There's a lot of wisdom throughout the entire book, but I thought this was a really really nice way to kind of tie everything up in terms of everything else and your book is on um it's it's very i would say just very concise like you know not a lot of fluff there is in there what needs to be in there which makes it a really really good read a really fast read all that kind of stuff which is great and so i want to quote one thing you said inside of it so basically i i forget which number this was i think it was like 10 things you said basically as advice to parents and children and families and all this kind of stuff so um quoting you here Parents, remember that misbehavior is a symptom of the child's discouragement, and parents should learn to use encouragement and training through natural and logical consequences. Parents need to consider and agree on choices together, end quote. 
which I think is is absolutely 100% correct. So I think that's I thought that was really really awesome that you kind of put that in there and you frame it that way. So yeah. what referencing that quote, what was the biggest thing that your parents agreed on that we all can learn from? So like what was the biggest thing that like you know showing that united front from a mother and father towards your towards you guys and your two siblings? What was the biggest thing that your parents agreed upon that we all can learn from in a lot of ways? Was it the discipline thing? Was it the confidence thing? Like, like what would you say that would be? Um, um, first, first, I can't. I wish I would. T- I would be able to take uh, credit for that for that um, last chapter, but that was actually my pastor's. He oh, it was like, okay. Well, hey, hey man, it's, it's it's your book. I would say like credit it, do whatever you want yeah, to do, but no, it was, it was awesome. Oh, shout out to yeah, yeah, shout, shout out to pastor. Awesome. Yeah. So, so really, um, I want to say the biggest thing that my both my parents agreed on. I want to say, first of all, my parents, at least for the most part, I never saw them argue. Right, my parents. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen my parents get into an argument. At least not in front of me. I'm, I, I may have, you know, kind of gotten the sense every here and there, like maybe my mom decides not to kiss my dad goodbye as he's headed not to go to work or something. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But it was it would be very subtle things like that where when you're a kid you don't really notice it, right? So I never seen my my parents um disagree uh, or be very disagreeable um, amongst themselves um in front of either myself or my younger brother or sister. So that was I want to say that was the biggest thing that I noticed that my parents kind of um agreed. I'm pretty sure they must have had that conversation where they did not want to have us see that kind of separation amongst them. And that also led us to believe as children that, you know, you tell mom something, she will report it back to my dad. Or you tell dad something, she yeah. he will report it back to mom. So you can't, there's no division between the two, right? Because they're always happy right. or they're never arguing. You never see any conflict between between two people. You, you, you almost cannot approach them and try to, you know, cause a division amongst them. So I want to say that was the biggest, I think the biggest thing that I feel we can adopt as we go into, you know, that next stage as we are, some of us are becoming parents or some of us are already parents, you know, having that sense of unity in front of your kids shows that, you know, like, hey, like I'm, my mom and my dad, like they're they're inseparable. You know, you can't, you can't sway my father into thinking this or into, you know, you can persuade my dad into allowing me to do this or persuade my mom into allowing me to do this, even though they may not, you know, both agree on you doing, you know, said thing. So I want to say unity is the biggest thing that I noticed between my two parents. Like, you know, they never argued. Um, though I know they have, you know, my mom has, has told me, because I, I brought it up to her before. Even as I wrote the book, I'm like, hey, like, you guys never really got into any huge arguments. Like, what's going on? But she, you know, she said all of that stuff kind of like, was done behind closed doors and it was done between the two mm-hmm. of them. And, you know, so that, and she said that was basically done just so that we, as kids growing up, we saw that, you know, that they wanted to make sure that we grew up in a loving and wholesome um, family and where they knew that our parents not only loved each other, but also loved us. So that's what, that's what, um, I want to say that that's probably like the biggest thing, having that sense of unity among the two. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's really, really great. And I think uh, for the last question, kind of everything else, and before we wrap it up, so what What I think is very interesting, especially as you know, you have this massive accomplishment, you write your first book, and it's a really good one, and you do all this kind of stuff, and you have all this all this praise coming in from, from a lot of other people, from the people that are important to you in your life. 
So um, kind of a two-parter here. So what was the thing that you got most out of writing the book? And two, if you could send one message to people reading, and I encourage people to buy the book, again, The African Immigrant Household by Kel Zanu, what would that one thing that you would want them to take away from it be? So that two-part is, it may, what did you get out of it, and what would you like other people to get out of it from when they read it? Uh, I want to say the biggest thing I got from writing that book was was the development. I, I want to say I don't I don't know um, exactly like how your process was, but you know writing the book uh, for the fir- for for the first time really kind of opened my eyes as far as like you know what like you know what goes into writing a book, how much preparation goes into writing a book, how yeah, much you absolutely. have to think, yeah, how much you have to think about you know sequencing all the chapters and making sure each chapter you know flow to the next one and and um outside from that just really the values that my parents instilled within me like you know before writing that book i never really sat down with myself to really think like hey like why do i behave in such a manner why do i think the way that i do and writing getting all those thoughts out of my head into a piece of paper kind of opened my eyes as far as like why I am the person that I am and why it is that I behave in such a manner. So I want to say that that's probably like the biggest takeaway for me because aside from writing that book, you know, I don't I, I don't really sit down too much to reflect as far as as far as um um like my upbringing really. So that like kind of like shed that light and kind of allowed me to go back and like revisit like why why certain things happened the way they did and you know what I got from those situations. Um, and the outcomes from that. Um, and I want to say the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I can send, or the biggest message I want I can send to, to others out there, I want to say is, 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 is probably to, when I wrote the book, it was mainly to, uh, for, for those who are, or who have been, or who are in that situation now, you know, where they're probably coming from the immigrant, immigrant household, I mean, immigrant country, and, you know, they're seeing the differences between, you know, how strict their parents are and how maybe less strict other parents are and, like, you know, wondering why their, their parents are so tough. I want to say it all comes down to, you know, tough love. Um, and I want to say that's probably, like, the best love because, you know, that allows you to grow in a sense where you know everything is not going to become to you easily and also it's going to let you know that you know like not everything is going to be handed to you um so you kind of have to earn your way through everything so like i want to say i want to say that 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 is like the biggest message and to know that you know for the most part you know i, I want to say there's you know there's always a few outliers but for the most part most parents have the best interests of their kids at heart so at the end of the day though you know though it, it, it it's tough to kind of understand it at that time you know when you're receiving the discipline at that time it's hard to accept it and swallow it um like later on like my dad would say like you don't understand why i'm so hard on you now but later on as you get older and you things start to get a little bit easier for you then you kind of start to understand why you know i had to be so strict on you the book is The African Immigrant Household. The author is the great Kel Zanu. Kel, thank you so much, brother. This, this is this is an absolute joy of a conversation. Thank you for coming on, man, again. A trailblazer in your own right, first author, first standard member, hopefully the first of many in both categories, but they have you to look forward to and follow up on, which is a big task. So thank you, brother. I really appreciate you coming on, man. Sam, I appreciate you for having me on your podcast, being the first guy from the standard that you're interviewing. It's 
Um, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And it's also, though I thought it was, it would be nerve-wracking, it was actually such an enjoy. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And like yourself, like I'm, you know, every time I, I see your book, it also inspires me to like, all right, what can I do with my book? And like, you know, as far as like learning about sales and like how, you, you know, you're doing everything that you're doing. So kudos to you as well for writing your book and everything with that matter. So I'm looking forward to reading more of your books. Um, and, you know, thank you again for having me on your podcast. Of course, man. I, I, I appreciate you, brother. And, and to the rest of the audience, uh, as usual. On the day, open your mind, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit, and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight slip?